Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Please um, join me in opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Sorry, that's my daughter. Verses 22 to 35. Or feel free to use it on your handheld devices as well. I know that's more popular these days. When the, time of the lo- when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer as a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, You now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own souls too. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's, um, it is the Advent season, and uh, as I said to you last week, that uh, Advent is, uh, is from the Latin word Adventus, which means arriving. And uh, it is actually the celebration or a season of preparation uh, not just for, for Christmas, uh, where we remember something that happened historically in the past, but it is also um, a season that remembers and celebrates that Christ is still arriving now. I, I like the picture of, you know, when you read some of the accounts of, of Jesus being born, these angelic kind of appearances, right? In a sense, heaven breaking in on earth, you know? Um, and I think that's what we want still today, that, that the season of Advent, in a sense, anticipates or prays for and hopes that Christ will break in on us again, that heaven will touch earth again, that we would have um, a continual relationship and encounter with the living God. And that's really what this season is for. I think the reason I love it is because I feel like the world and where, you know, my world, your world, and the world we're in is always in need of Christ to break in. And so sometimes in seasons like this, we think, well, okay, well, where, where are we at as a community, as a society? Where is it that we need Christ to break in? And I was thinking about, um, even though it feels like old news now, um, you know, the recent election that went on in, in the United States, and what was so remarkable to me was how much it affected us in Canada and really all over the world. It was sort of news everywhere. One of the reasons was, I think it was, it was a... It was an illustration of how polarizing certain people can be. 
Like it was one of those elections where um, either you were really for the candidate you were for or you were really against the other one. And either way, that was how you were going to vote. I, I, like, isn't this true? Like you can't realize how polarizing it was in the sense that who you were for or who you were against brought out all kinds of kind of angst and frustration. And this is more than, you know, there are polarizing figures in the world of sports or media where, you know, if you say their name, if you like such and such an artist or whatever, people go, oh, I hate that person. Oh, I hate her voice. Or, oh, he's a great athlete. He's so arrogant or whatever. And we may, we, you know, we may argue about those things, but sort of friendly. This was like a different thing. This was a level of polarization because who you supported said something about you, right? And so there was this thing, and, and, and I heard stories of, of these, these, this election dividing families, um, dividing marriages, dividing workplaces, where it became very awkward to even say the name of one candidate or the other because they were so polarizing. And, and really, what, what the reason figures in, in life are polarizing is because there may be certain aspects of them that we might admire or commend, but there's other things about them that we find reprehensible. We find offensive, or we think, well, I can't believe they did this, or sure, they're a great leader, but they've done this in their past, or sure, you know, they seem to have wisdom on this, but did you see their policy on this? And it just kind of tears us apart, and there's this kind of polarizing um, response. But if you think about it, there's, there's, a, there's a figure that's even more polarizing whose name you actually have a hard time, like if, if you're going to actually use it at all. In, in our home group, we talked about it when you're in a conversation, all of a sudden you drop a J-bomb on someone, right? You use Jesus' name. It's a polarizing word. It's one of those words. I was thinking about the fact that my kids go to a fairly ethnically diverse um, school, like we, we play the game Spot the White Kid at, uh, at, uh, at, Chris, at the Christmas Cantata because there's just so few. There's just, it's like the United Nations on the stage, you know? Um, and, and yet I would, if I drive through our neighborhood and knowing in the school, I would say at least 50%, if not more, maybe 60, 70% of people are celebrating Christmas in some shape or form at this point in year. And even though we may sort of call it happy holidays and whatever, and you know what? I'm not here to rant about why we can't call it Christmas. Just get over it, okay? It's Chris. Some people, you just have to say happy holidays to other people's Christmas. But it's interesting, right, that we would have almost still our entire culture celebrating, like, what happened at Christmas? We all know. Whose birthday is it? Even if you don't want to say anything about who he is, even if you were to just do a play on the historical origins of Christmas, it would be about Jesus, right? I remember my sister saying years ago when their kids were in public school and they were doing this sort of celebration of all of the different um, traditions, and so they would have a song for whatever, um, for, um, for Hanukkah or for Eid or for whatever it was, and she said the song that represented Christmas was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, <laughs> right? It's because you can't say that name. If you're an artist... You can have lyrics that are incredibly derogatory to women. You can call them terrible names. You can use racial slurs. And you can talk about killing people. They'll put you on the radio. They might even give you an award for that album. But don't say Jesus. It won't get played. So polarizing. Office conversations. In fact, you can sometimes even talk, definitely talk about spirituality. You can sometimes talk about God. But as soon as the word Jesus comes up, you know. Maybe you've seen it. It's just a little awkward polarizing figure, which is kind of strange. And, and I get why for some people it's polarizing because of the history of the church and all the 
crap that the church has done in the name of Jesus, I get that. But if you just, just say that, set that aside for a moment and just think about this. Is Mother Teresa a polarizing figure? The people say, nah, you know, she kind of wasted her life. And, you know, like if he said, oh, I, I'm actually doing, I'm going to Calcutta to follow in the steps of Mother Teresa to minister to people in the slums. Nobody would go, ooh, why did you bring that up? That's so awkward. They go, oh, well, that's amazing. Or we do Black History Month at, at our, our kids' school where they study the life of Martin Luther King. And generally speaking, Martin Luther King is not going to be a polarizing figure. Malcolm X, maybe more. Ma Martin Luther King, not so right? Passive resistance, civil disobedience, protested in the right way, spoke up for people, and actually freed his African-American peers and family from slavery was a key part of it. Is he a polarizing figure? No. We just gladly celebrate, and they're going to do a day about it at our school, as they should. And yet, who inspired Mother Teresa? Jesus. It was him she was following. Who did Martin Luther King quote? It was Jesus. It was him that he was inspiring to do the things he did. In fact, if you look at every St. Jude, St. Mike's, every St. Hospital is, what was it based on? On the Christian movement. And re the reason the modern day medicine is, is because if you look at in history in the fourth century, when um, the plague was ripping through Rome, and they were throwing bodies of the sick people in the streets and people leaving um, Rome itself to get away from the plague that was so contagious. The Emperor Julian, he said the, the, um, the Galileans, who they thought were sort of unclean and like because they didn't worship uh, uh, the emperor, they worshiped Jesus. He said, isn't it despicable how these Galileans care for our own people better than we do? There were Christians that were taking in the, the infected bodies of Roman pagans into their homes and caring for them, even dying because of it. And it, was the, it started the modern-day medicine movement. You look at the Red Cross, Samaritan's Purse, who we just did um, uh, Operation Christmas Child, World Vision, Compassion, pretty much every humanitarian organization in the world, either now or at one point in their history, would been influenced by who? Jesus any place where you've seen Christianity in the world at any period of time, you will find equal rights for women and children. Any place that it has not been for hundreds and hundreds of years, you will not find that. Our, our friend who works in Guinea, she says, I can always tell when Christ has come to a Ghanaian home. Because before, the father always gets the largest portion of food, and then it sort of goes on down to the youngest children and then the women. He said, she said, whenever I go into a home where Christ has come to that home, the child, the youngest child, is sitting on the father's lap, eating out of his bowl the massive portion of food. It has changed the way they view women and children. So how on earth is Jesus polarizing? There isn't anybody in history who has been more merciful, more compassionate, more revolutionary, more kind, and more forgiving, and yet you can't say his name at the water cooler. It's strange, right? Why is that? We think it's maybe because, you know, the history and the damage of what the church has done. It's true in some cases, but if, if actually if you look at what more good has been done on the earth, you could say, well, why, why? this is strange. But the passage that Michelle read for us actually said that this was prophesied about Jesus before he even came to be. Yes, he was called the Savior of the world. He was going to save people from their sins. He was going to bring peace to the world. He was going to bring the mercy and the kindness of God. All this, all, these were all the language that was used about him in the first chapter of Luke. And yet in chapter 2, 
we read this. So, so Mary and Joseph hear all these amazing prophecies. They realize they're going to be the parents of their Lord. Crazy, right? And yet on the eighth day, it was part of the, of the purification process where Jesus would go and be circumcised. They go to take him to the temple. And as they're there, they meet this old man named Simeon. And Mary's used to now some weird things happening around the birth of this child, right? The weird thing was it was a virgin birth to begin with. If that wasn't enough, there was all these people always saying these things about who this child was going to be. And it was just, they were just starting to wrap their minds around, like, this is really true. So they walk in, they, um, you know, Jesus is there. And then this old man, Simeon, comes up to them. And you look in verse uh, 34. We don't have it on the screen today. The projector doesn't work. So this is the last appeal for you if you don't have the Bible app on your phone, people. Really. Okay. Um, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, okay, blessing, <laughs> This child is destined to call the cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the guy you don't invite to your kid's birthday parties because he says, you know, this is like a bummer blessing, right? All of a sudden, you know, there's all these great things being talked about who Jesus would be. And then in this moment... This man who's clearly said filled with the Holy Spirit turns to them and says, listen, this child is going to cause the rising and the falling of many people. And listen, he will be a sign that will be spoken against that will reveal people's hearts. The polarizing nature of Jesus is not actually a function of the history of the church or whatever. It was something that was about Jesus that the prophet said from the beginning would be. That there would be this reaction to Jesus that for some, it would cause their hearts in a sense to rise. For others, they would sink. And many would speak out against him. Like in other words, his life would cause people to, to say things against him that would reveal what was going on in their hearts. And if you think about, well, why would that be? Like, you know, because if we read the accounts of what Jesus did, I mean, he was incredibly merciful and kind. He taught with words that were inspiring and helped them see God like they have never, never seen him before. He, he went to the lepers, and the lepers were people who were actually, um, because it was such a contagious disease, they were actually considered per, you know, perpetually unclean, which was not only a sort of a physical health problem, it was a, re a religious ritual problem, because if you were with lepers, you couldn't touch them, and they would make you unclean. If you touched a dead body, if you touched someone who's sick, you were made ritually unclean. And so then you would have to go and do all this washing and stuff like that and go to the temple and, and all this kind of stuff. And so lepers who were perpetually unclean were sort of left outside of the city. So they were unclean. Nobody would touch them. If you touch them, you got unclean. Jesus comes to the leper. And it's interesting, one of that counts when he heals a leper. Other times he just spoke to people to heal them. Why does he touch a leper? He touches a leper and instead of he becoming unclean, the, the leper is healed. And what did a leper need more than anything else? To be touched right? Because they were pariahs. They were cut off. They weren't allowed even to be touched. They had no physical touch with people. And so Jesus comes. Like, this is what Jesus was doing. He was going to the, the poor, the marginalized, the people who were cut off. He was breaking bread and feeding thousands of people, doing all kinds of miracles. And yet there was something about him. And he was giving forgiveness to all kinds of people who thought they, they didn't deserve it. What was it about Jesus that gave people such a polarizing, in some cases, strong reaction. Some people loved him. Other people hated him. And in the end, 
They killed him. I was thinking about this as I was writing. I think if I could put it into a word, what was it about Jesus and what is it about Jesus still that if we're honest, not just people out there, but there's something in us that loves him and another part of us that wants to silence him? It's his humility. It's his humility in life and his humility in death. Now, as I say that, you think, no, no, humility is a beautiful characteristic. Humility is a beautiful quality. It's the kind of thing we want to see in other people. It's the kind of thing we actually expect. And we, you know, we sort of bemoan the fact that our political leaders don't seem to have any of it, right? It's the thing we want leaders to have. You say, no, no, that's a virtue. Humility is a virtue. What is it about the humility of Jesus that we find so offensive? It's because he didn't just heal. He didn't just move towards those who were cut off. He didn't just use his life and his power and priority in the service of others. He said to other people who had power and wealth and priority and position, you should be doing the same thing too. He didn't just do it. He said, follow me. And that's the part we find offensive. It's interesting, right? If, if we believe the things that were said about Jesus to be true, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is, John says, he was the one at the beginning, right? Like he was the one with God, speaking the universe into existence. Philippians 2 said he had everything. He was equal with God and he left it all. If this is how God chose to use the authority and power and wealth and priority that he had, what excuse do you and I have for the way we use ours? There's no more excuse, right? If this is how God chose to use his power, then anyone else with power in the world is invited to do the same. See, I think in some ways the reason we worship celebrities, athletes, the rich and famous in some weird way, it gives us kind of permission to do the same thing in our own. Right? We can look at extravagant wealth and think, man, I can't believe they paid this for that and paid that for that. But it sort of gives us permission to pay what we want to pay for what we want to pay for. But if someone else with more is doing even more, it suddenly makes us realize, wait, what should I be doing with mine? Right? If this is how the God of heaven chose to use his spare time, what should I be doing with mine? This was the nature of Jesus' ministry. He wasn't just doing it. He was inviting people to come with him, and they found it offensive. He, you know why he was so upset with the religious leaders? He said to them, you have misrepresented God to the people. And you know how you've misrepresented him? You are not gracious. You are not generous. You do not move towards those who are in trouble or sick and you do not give yourself away on their behalf. And therefore, you have failed to represent God because this is who God is. And this is what they, and quite frankly, we find offensive, right? It is the humility of his life, not just that we, we love the grace and the love of Jesus and how he is with others, but we find it hard to follow him, and yet that's what he says, if anyone would come after me, you would follow me. And I remember one person saying to me years ago, Vijay, if your life is not regularly confronted with the difficulty of having to give yourself away, you have to ask yourself, who is it that you're following? 
What is it that your life looks like? And this is the stuff. Forget the church. Forget the world and the culture out there that doesn't want us to say Merry Christmas and doesn't want to do plays about Jesus. Let's just think about the church, us, you, me. It is that humility that we find so difficult to follow. And Jesus is constantly inviting us into a life of generosity and kindness that is willing to leave the comforts of what we know and move towards the margins. They, um, I was taking a, a course in Luke this past semester, and our prof was talking about how in the, in the ancient world there was a culture um, of reciprocity. And reciprocity was this idea of, you know, um, how we treat other people and what, what comes to us in return. And he said, you know, there was this, everyone in that culture had a circle of reciprocity where you would turn the other cheek, where you would forgive, where you would go out of your way to help them. But that circle was always your family. Basically, who, if you, would, you would do it for your family. Family was very, very strong as a value. Family was considered like we were, people considered themselves not first and foremost as individuals, but as members of a, of a community, of a family, and, and, and the broader sort of extended family. And that was your circle. And in that circle, sure, you would, you would give away your coat if somebody needed it, or you would help them, because you know that's kind of how the family has to work, and somebody's going to have your back one day. But he said, outside of that circle... And that was, was this idea of balanced genera- uh, reciprocity, where I'm only going to do something for you if you're going to do it in return for me. And so you would help people, but you would only help people who would be able to help you back. And if you helped them, that, mean, that meant they owed you. And so that was how reciprocity worked in that culture. And Jesus said, actually, Jesus was constantly breaking apart the inner circle. He said, who are my mother and father, right? He said, if any, remember that statement, he says, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't follow me. He's like, what did Jesus want? He's like, no, you just have to stop thinking about your inner circle in a way that only has to do with your relatives and the people that you love and care for. Jesus was always going to the people outside of the circle, people who weren't from his ethnic background, people who weren't part of the social class, people who weren't considered part of the religious elite or the religiously accepted, and they hated him for it. He said, Jesus, you're turning our whole culture upside down. You're saying we should, and he said, I'm not even saying, never mind your family, I'm saying do good to those who hurt you. Love your enemies. He was breaking apart the circle, and it was breaking them apart. And this is why, and let's face it, we think love your enemies sounds so beautiful. How many of us really love doing it? It's horrible. And we think, Jesus, really? That person? And that was the thing that bothered them the most. It was this humility in life that they found so offensive, and quite frankly, so do I. It's the thing I find most difficult about following him, that he is constantly pushing me out further than I want to go. But it's also his humility in death. Because what does it say about me that the Son of God had to die to fix what was wrong with me? Right? What does it say? Which is why we find the cross so offensive. No, why? That's so extreme. You know, I'm not that bad, Jesus. Why did you have to die? Why did you have to give your life away? What was so wrong? What was so going on? I don't actually want to admit that the sin in my life was so deep that I needed actually someone who was perfectly clean to die in my place and say, there, I've paid the debt you owe. Now you're free. That's the part that I find offensive. The cross is offensive to me. Maybe I would like to think, yeah, in my past, you know, yeah, I was a mess and I, and I needed that, but now I'm good. You know, the cross is part of my past, but it's not a part of my present, and I really hope it's not a part of my future. 
because I think I've cleaned my life up now. And yet Jesus comes to me again and again. That's why we celebrate communion regularly as a church, right? Because the elements remind us somebody died for you and you needed it yesterday again, just as much as you did a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. In fact, you'll never outlive this. It is a gift that continues to give. And yet if I don't want to admit what's really in me, I will find the cross offensive. It is the humility of his death that makes me want to say, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Either I don't need a savior at all, or I don't need one anymore, I'm good now. I know I did then, but now I'm walking, now I'm good, right, Jesus? Now, now what gives me my right standing with God is my own good life. And Jesus says, no. You know, the cross stands above it all, that song says. It is that humility that I find offensive. The way I put it is pride can't hide when humility arrives, right? When humility comes, pride comes to the surface. And the things in my life that I know need to change come to the surface. And now if he's bringing them up, it's either kill or be killed. Either I have to admit that what he's saying about me is true or I have to silence him. And that's exactly why he died, right? He was bringing things to the surface, the pride of religion, the pride of riches, the pride of self-satisfied people, self-righteousness. It came to the surface and either they had to admit that it was true or they had to silence him. And instead of judging them, we need to look and say, you know what, the same instinct I have when this comes to the surface about me, I don't want to admit that it's true. My own pride comes to the surface, and now it's, it's either me or Jesus, and one of us got to go. <laughs> one of us has to die. Because pride can't hide when that humility arrives. It's the humility of Jesus that makes us want to speak out against him and say, Lord, no, 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 I've done enough. Or, or I'm good now, or I don't want to think about the forgiveness that I still need. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he was always inviting people to walk with him. You know, he invited his disciples. He didn't teach them anything before he said, follow me. You know, those poor guys, they had no idea what they were getting into. And that's true with us too. It's the beautiful thing about Jesus is he doesn't sit there and say, okay, here's all the things you need to do. Clean up your life and I'll come back in a little while. And if you're ready, then you can walk with me. And he says, no, just come with me. I want to teach you a different way of living. This is the invitation that is, in a sense, is always given to us, friends. It's always going out, and, and it's going out for some of you that have never actually said, yes, I'll follow you. But even for those of us that said, yeah, yeah, I am, the invitation comes still. Jesus saying, come on, don't stop. Walk with me. There's more I have to show you. It is the life that he invites us into. And so I wanted to, to give you, and it's on the back of your bulletin, just Something to do this Christmas. Is to let Jesus take a shot at your pride this Christmas. You know, if it's a kill or be killed instinct, and I say, oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna know this about me. I'd rather you stop talking. Say, okay, I'll, I'll let you in. I'll let you take a shot at my pride. For some of you, this may look like this. Maybe there's somebody, and, and maybe it's somebody you're gonna see this Christmas. Maybe it's someone you're working with. Maybe it's someone in your family that is, is, you know you have hurt them. 
and you have refused to say sorry. Like there's just something in you that says, no, I don't want to do it. They did too. I'm waiting. Why am I always the one that has to go first? Or there's just something, you know, that, you know, I've tried to fix that. I've said I'll be better, but I haven't said I'm sorry. I know those two words, my ones, you know, conjunction. Like that is one of the things that takes such a big shot at my pride when I really have to say it. Maybe for some of you it's a letter you need to write or a note you need to send or a coffee date you need to set up and just say, you know what, I'm sorry. That's actually letting Jesus take a little bit of a shot at that pride that wants to resist the humility of his life. See, the more we let the humility of Jesus, even the cross, speak its forgiveness to us today, the more free we are to say to someone else, you know, I'm sorry, because you know what, I just today I admitted to Jesus that I'm a sinner, so I'm okay to admit it to you too, right? But when I don't, when I resist his humility, I can't even say I'm sorry because I haven't said it to anyone, I haven't even said it to Jesus because I just don't want to think about that. Actually, the freedom that comes, you know, confession, repentance is not a heavy thing, for those of us who are in Christ. It's a freedom thing. It's like, yeah, why am I carrying this load? And so maybe there's a relationship that you need to say, and, and, and again, as someone said years to me before, maybe sometimes the reason that forgiveness is, you know, saying sorry is easy is because we've said it to God, but we really haven't actually said it to the person we need to. Why is it easier to say sorry to God than another sinner? <laughs> maybe it's because it hasn't come home yet. Some of you, maybe the, the conversation you need to have is say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I, I've been holding stuff against you, and I'm sorry. Or maybe, you know, you've kind of said it, but they still know that you still kind of hold something. And so maybe that's a conversation. That is also a shot at your pride. Say, I forgive you. As I have been forgiven, right? The Lord's Prayer. So we forgive. And then maybe for others of you, that the, the way that the, the shot of your pride is saying, God, what can I give? What part of me, of my money or my time or my energy, can I actually freely give to another without any expectation of return? This isn't about reciprocity. This isn't about, well, they did it for me. I should, God, who can I go and serve and love and give? Who I will get nothing from them in return. And there's no other reason to do it except that you have invited me out there. Who is Jesus pushing you out further than you want to go? I'm telling you, a step of faith, a small thing, it's a shot at our pride. And the only way I know how to, you know, pride has to die by a thousand cuts. It's just repeated willingness to follow Jesus. And I would think, you know what, if we we stopped worrying about the fact that nobody wants to talk about Jesus at Christmas, and you and I started to actually let him take some shots at our pride, I think Jesus would be in the room with us, whether people said his name out loud or not. Because where we are, he is there. And as we follow him in his ways, he's with us. And then the world will see and sense and feel him long before they even say his name out loud. Can we do that together? Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Lead us. One of the songs they're going to lead us in is, What Child Is This? 
And the line from that song that sticks in my head all the time is, Nails, spears shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me and for you. And so maybe this is just a chance this morning for you to worship this child. You know, who is this that lives like this, that dies like this? To just say, thank you, Jesus, for for what you have done. And to just let him invite you to walk with him in this way.